How's Jane Eyre? Good. <laughs> really? After all the poetry, it's finally good to read a novel. Um, all right, well, good. You have another one for Wednesday, uh, the aspirin papers for Wednesday and Thursday. So uh, that'll be good, too. Um, and after that, well, it's, it's uh, prose fiction for a while. Um, so uh, I guess we have a lot to say about Jane Eyre today. We talked a little bit about it in my section, but it turned out we talked about other things, too. Um, and uh, did you guys, what did you guys talk about, Tina? Okay, good. So what gender expectations? Yeah, whoever. Because it's something we can talk about today as well. Um, all right, well, let's first of all contextualize Jane Eyre a little bit in the reading that we've done. Um, so you will have noticed that she quotes some of the stuff that we've read as well as a bunch of stuff we haven't read. Um, many of the authors that we've read as well as some authors that we haven't read, including God in the Bible. Um, but we've read versions of God in Paradise Lost, so that's close enough. Um, but she quotes Paradise Lost a few times, and um, one of her sketches is uh, she describes um, a kind of shapelessness in one of her sketches using um, the description of death in book two of Paradise Lost, um, the other shape, um, if shape it might be called, that had none. Um, that's, she's also describing that in her own um, artistic work. Um, she quotes King Lear a couple of times. Um, it's always interesting when people are quoting like that, when any author is quoting like that, to see whether the quotation um, is being used in the same way as in its source or is being used differently. Um, and sometimes the difference is major, sometimes the difference is minor, sometimes it is the same way. Um, Adele sheds some natural tears, do people remember that? When, when uh, the quotation is slightly altered, so um, Adele is unhappy when everyone comes to the first party at Rochester's house because Jane and Adele are not going to... Um, or at least Jane thinks that they're not going to be able to be part of that party. Adele is disappointed, and the line is that Jane quotes is then, some natural tears she shed. Um, do people know where that's from in Paradise Lost? Yeah, Hannah. It's actually, in Paradise Lost, it's they. So it's some natural tears they shed. Um, so Eve is one of the two, they, the other being Adam. And when did they shed natural tears? Sorry? Yes, it's practically the last line of Paradise Lost. It's then that they hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through eat and take their solitary way. So here Adele is, is sad that she can't be part of a party, and um, for whatever reason, Jane Eyre um, partly parodying Adele's overreaction to this, um, partly just because Paradise Lost is on her mind, or maybe on Charlotte Bronte's mind, 
um, partly because there's some real sensitivity there to the fact that it is a little bit sad that the class differences, the um, social differences, the um, situation is a little bit sad. Um, and partly as a kind of commentary on Paradise Lost, that what we know when we hear that Adam and Eve shed natural tears is we know what those are from our own lives and our own petty disappointments. Um, so that the interpretation of Paradise Lost, you could say, is partly something we can do because of our own everyday lives. And Jane Eyre is very much, in a lot of ways, a story about things that happen in everyday life. In a lot of ways it isn't, um, but in a lot of ways it is. One of the ways it isn't is that there are not that many Rochesters around. Um, another way that it isn't is that there are not that many Jane Eyre's around. There are not that many Helen Burns's around. There's some remarkable characters in Jane Eyre, and what makes the novel an interesting um, novel, a page-turner, which I think it is a page-turner, um, is that there are a whole bunch of um, really interesting characters who we're basically rooting for. Um, the ones we're rooting for are most of all Jane and Rochester and Helen Burns, who dies, um, and to some extent, the Rivers sisters, Sinjin Rivers. You, by the way, you know it's Sinjin, not St. John. Everyone knows that? Okay, now you do. Uh, the way St. John is pronounced is Sinjin. Um, that's the, the English pronunciation of St. John. Um, so Sinjin is a kind of iffy character, but um, also pretty remarkable. He becomes less remarkable. We get to like him less, which is an interesting um, feature or fact about him as a character, the better we get to know him. Um, but he's a pretty remarkable character. His sisters are great. Um, and there are just a bunch of really, really neat characters. And then there are a bunch of really, really um, gothic or nearly gothic Character, starting with Mrs. Reed and her children, and then um, certainly moving up to the famous mad woman in the attic. Um, so, and then there's action, um, there's, there's suicide, there's um, bigamy, um, or the possibility of bigamy, there's blindness, there's mutilation. Um, so all, all sorts of interesting things occurring in Jane Eyre, but against a background, which is very much a background of familiar or relatively familiar daily life um, with all that's grueling about it, um, including the labor of daily life, cleaning up, um, tutoring, teaching, um, keeping the house in order, um, getting the meals ready, um, living on scanty money, sometimes living in dire want, um, people getting sick and people dying. Um, and that's a really, really interesting um, set and of um, a really interesting combination of things. Um, partly, if yeah, Hannah. Mm -hmm. Gothic means characters. So in the late 18th century, um, there's a vogue for um, novels, which are basically novels of terror. Um, in which you have, um, in, the, in their most, um, in their strongest forms of terror, you have vampires and monsters um, like that. In less strong forms, it's that you have um, sheerly evil characters who are hiding out in the woods, kidnapping children, doing things like that. So they're, they're basically where horror novels come from. 
um, clover fields starts in the late 18th century. Um, and that kind of novel, you can read them. There are a lot of Gothic novels and then many, many parodies of Gothic novels. But the kind of novel um, that a Gothic novel is is one that's, that is compulsively interesting because it, um, it's so frightening. And um, many of the characters in Gothic novels are, I mean, a, a later version would be something like Dracula. Um, many of the characters in Gothic novels are um, fascinating because you feel that they are either represent, representations of or um, interacting with forces of evil. Um, so they're the kind, they're the novelistic versions of some of the same supernatural ideas that we saw in some of the ballads that we looked at. And as I say, at the end of the 18th century, um, they're they're also when you when you have um, very very sneaky Machiavellian villains whose um, great desire is to is to cause as much harm as possible. So just think horror novel in 18th century style. Um, and that's what a gothic novel is. Gothic novels also get parodied um, in really, really interesting ways. Probably the parodies are, on the whole, better than the novels themselves, than the originals. Um, so the greatest parody of a gothic novel is um, Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. Um, whose heroine really likes reading gothic novels, and she, it, because she um, likes them so much, she tends to um, want to read her life as actually going the way a gothic novel does. And she turns out to be wrong, but she doesn't turn out to be wrong quite as um, much as she's told she's wrong. Um, but the vogue, the interest in gothic novels is interesting to later and deeper novelists, novelists who are more psychologically um, acute, the way Charlotte Bronte is, the way Jane Austen is. Um, they're of interest because part of what they're interested in is why people like, what it says about human psychology that people like reading Gothic novels, that people want to believe that they are the heroes or heroines of Gothic novels. Why is that a wish? Why do you want that to be so, um, one place that you can see that, um, how many of you, I, in my section only two or three people have read it, but in general, how many of you have read Wuthering Heights? So, um, oh, that's good, so you're all in the other section, mostly. Um, so in Wuthering Heights, you will remember those of you, so Wuthering Heights is by Emily Bronte, um, who is Charlotte's, one of Charlotte's younger sisters. Um, and there's a... Um, if you want a good debating subject for the next time you go out to a pub on a Friday night, you can just get people to decide whether they prefer Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre. Um, the entire world splits along those lines, Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre. Um, it's like Bernie versus Hillary or um, Donald versus Ted. Um, so at the beginning of Wuthering Heights, the narrator um, of Wuthering Heights um, sees a ghost. And it's the ghost, he doesn't know what it is, but it's really there. It's the ghost of the um, dead Catherine Earnshaw. Um, she really does appear and rattles the window. Um, and that is gothic, pure and simple. After that, there's in Wuthering Heights, it's never clear whether there are any supernatural elements in that novel at all, but it's got a kind of supernatural, it, you get a kind of supernatural 
um, background to it, even though the supernaturalness of it um, doesn't then explicitly appear. But what it does do is it makes the character of Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights seem even stranger and scarier and harder to um, interpret and harder to assimilate to um, what's going on in that novel than he would be if you didn't have a sense that he was summoning back um, the dead Catherine, the ghost of Catherine. Um, so that's how Wuthering Heights begins, and that's very much a Gothic element. Heathcliff is to Wuthering Heights, um, but much, much more so. Heathcliff is to Wuthering Heights what Rochester is to Jane Eyre. And what they are are figures who probably, um, you could say very straightforwardly, derive from Milton Satan. That is, figures who are charismatic and in some sense sublime and whose sublimity has nothing or at least very little to do with virtue. Um, as sublimity rarely does have anything to do with virtue, at least literary sublimity. Um, Heathcliff is clearly an evil character. Um, he's still great, and we're st we still end up on his side. But Heathcliff um, is more obviously descended from Satan than um, Rochester is, but it's not that hard to see the similarities between Rochester and Heathcliff. And what they are, are they are characters um, with um, opaque and troubling backgrounds who don't tell you much about what their background is, how they came to be, what they are, characters who have been in one way or another. I mean, if you haven't read Wuthering Heights, I'm partly hoping that this, is, this will give you a reason to read it. Um, um, characters who have been unfairly excluded from a life to which they have been invited, but invited as aliens and outsiders. Um, Rochester as the younger brother, Heathcliff as a sort of foundling or an adopted brother, and therefore characters who have to make their own way in the world um, using the resources of personality and of scorn that belong to them. So. Um, if you think of Satan as one of the strangely winning characteristics of Satan is his scornfulness. Um, scorn at those below you is never winning. When um, the rich scorn the poor, when the powerful scorn the powerless, when the presidential candidates scorn the protesters um, or whatever, um, that tends not to feel winning to readers. Um, it's too easy a thing to do. Scorn becomes winning when scorn is scorn of those who have power over you. When scorn comes from a position of official or actual political or financial or social powerlessness, um, but despite that fact, the scornful figure, rather than kowtowing and brown-nosing those who have power, um, the scornful figure refuses to be um, um, forced into 
some kind of um, of lackey dumb, some kind of lackey like subordination. Um, so scorn is itself a an expression in conditions like that of the power of personality, and the power of personality under unfair pressure. So to the extent that Satan feels that his um, um, treatment by God, his expulsion from heaven, his um, damnation to hell is unfair because he was battling for freedom, whereas God was battling simply for power. Satan's response as a scornful one is a response that says there is nothing you can do to him that will cause him to love Big Brother. Reference? 1984. Yeah, 1984 is the opposite ending. When at the end of 1984, Winston Smith loves Big Brother, then what's happened is the last vestige of scorn, the last vestige, vestige of resistance is removed from him. Scorn represents a kind of psychological resistance to power, or at least it's attractive when it represents psychological resistance to power. You could say that scorn goes both ways, that God scorns Satan and that Satan scorns God, but Satan's scorn of God is something that's impressive. God's scorn of Satan is just someone who, as Shelley says, um, in the absolute security of undoubted power, can just have contempt for those who are beneath him. So kicking up, that's what Satan does, that's what Heathcliff does, that's what Rochester does. Um, kicking down is what God does. So they're two different kinds of scorn. And what makes Heathcliff and Rochester impressive as characters is the scorn they have for those who would lord it over them. Um, what makes them impressive characters also, in some ways more, in some ways less than Satan, is that they're successful at making their own way, using their own courage and using their own refusal to be cowed um, in order to um, manage to make their way in a world that doesn't want to see them making their way in that world. Um, so they're both, they're impressive that way. If Rochester, do people see, would you agree that even though Rochester, you know, is ultimately um, not nearly as bitter a character as Heathcliff, nor does he go nearly as far as Heathcliff. Um, would you nevertheless agree that the kind of charisma he has is in, is, is in the same family, that he's in the same family of charismatic characters that Satan would be in? Is that something that makes sense to people? It's a question. Is there anyone who doesn't see that connection? Okay, so we'll take it as read then. Are you looking skeptical? I, I missed the first part of the question. Would you, <laughs> if you were taking, I don't know, a final exam in this class or something, and if you were asked to lump characters into various groups, would you 
um, assuming that that I, I mean I can't formulate the question right now, but assuming that there were there were groups of satanic characters and groups of angelic characters, let's say, groups of uh, groups to which the rebel angels belonged, Satan in particular, and groups to which the loyal angels belonged, um, let's say Michael or Gabriel or Uriel in particular. Um, would you put Rochester in the Rebel Angel group, or would you put him in the Loyal Angel group? Yeah. Well, I mean, he literally is on the sky and saying what he wants. Just like. Just like yes. Uh huh. Okay. So, um, do other people agree that part of that? If how many people like Rochester? Okay, that's wrong answer. How many people don't like Rochester? How come? That's interesting. I, I don't really like him because, like, he, he had a wife that he kind of kept in, you know, his attic that he didn't feel like telling anybody about, really, and that just seems, that's really sketchy. <laughs> I don't know. It is sketchy. On the other hand, she tries to murder him. <laughs> it may be the question is to what extent is that a plot device um, so there is the there is a question there's a famous book one of the first books some of you may know of um, feminist of really important feminist literary criticism is a book called The Mad Woman in the Attic and um, it ta obviously it takes um, uh, Jane Eyre and takes that situation as a feminist fable um, and rightly so, but I think we also we we do and should think of Jane as um, an extraordinary feminist um, heroine. Um, I don't think you will find much before Jane Eyre um, where you get um, women characters like Jane, women characters who refuse um, to see their goal as to be of service to great men. Um, generally what even in Jane Austen, um, the happy marriage that happens at the end of Jane Austen is a marriage of equals, but it's a marriage of equals that um, is good for the women. Um, that is, getting married is something that um, is a goal for the women in those novels and a goal which brings them to a higher place than they were before. It's not at all clear that anything besides her actual desires rather than some um, elevation in her standing in not the social world because clearly her even even it's not even obvious that her social standing goes up when she marries Rochester um, but it's certainly the case that somehow her moral or human standing doesn't particularly go up by marrying Rochester. That Jane's marriage of Rochester at the end, um, and it is at the end, is something she wants, but not because um, the universally acknowledged truth that marriage is a good in itself, that it, it, that it represents a social advance for a woman to get married. Jane doesn't think that. For her, it's ju that's just not an issue. The question of whether she gets married or not is a question of is there someone she wants to marry. It's not as it is, you could say, in almost any novel of marriage before this, 
Um, it's not a novel about a woman wants to get married because that's what a woman should want to do, because that's what a happy ending looks like, is finding a husband. Um, and therefore, the question is, will she find the right husband? Um, Jane Eyre plays with that idea, but that's, Jane Eyre the novel plays with that idea, um, but that's very much not the idea of the novel. Jane doesn't care whether she gets married or not until she meets Rochester, um, but it's because she likes him, not because she likes marriage. And that's a pretty strong difference from the standard novel up to the time. Um, it's not that the standard novel is, oh, I'm a woman, I must get married, that's really important, but that's what's implicit in standard novels of marriage, that the, that the happy ending will be when the woman finds a husband. You could say Jane Eyre gives you that same happy ending, but it gets there via a completely different route. I think one way that it gets there, just to get back to Sinjin for a minute, one way that it gets there is that it seems pretty clear to a naive reader reading Jane Eyre for the first time, it would have seemed pretty clear to um, um, Bronte's readers at the time that, okay, so Rochester turned out to be wrong, but there's Sinjin, and in lots of ways he's just perfect. And what's not perfect about him becomes clearer and clearer as we see what a tyrant he is um, and how his t how what his what masks his tyranny from himself and from others, what allows him to be a tyrant despite being a moral person, is that he's a moral fanatic, that he's a tyrant on behalf of God. Um, but the idea that, yes, Jane almost made this mistake with Rochester, but oh, thank goodness for Sinjin, uh, first reading of Jane Eyre, you may start feeling um, when you're halfway through the book or two-thirds of the way through the book, that that's the direction it's going to go. And you may feel also some regret about that. Um, in a way, that's what happens in Wuthering Heights. Um, that is that Catherine does not, spoiler alert, marry Heathcliff, um, but instead marries a much more Sinjin-like character. Um, and that is... Um, has its pluses and its minuses. It's clearly a minus in Wuthering Heights, but there are also pluses to that. Um, I think we're really, really glad that she doesn't end up marrying Sinjin. So, but then the question is, um, what about the first <coughs> um, uh, Mrs. Rochester as a plot device? And um, one of the questions you can ask is, is this a clunky and clumsy plot device? That is, that to have this person who is hidden in a gothic mode, that is very much a gothic mode. Um, to have someone, you know, a prisoner in the basement, a madwoman in the attic, um, someone who is a danger and who is kept silent. In some sense, what you have here is a description of um, almost an allegory of repression, that there's a dark secret that is being kept secret by being kept hidden. And that dark secret turns out to be a sexual 
secret. Um, there are other dark secrets in the book that turn out not to, that also turn out to be sexual secrets that turn out not to be as important as they seem. That is, Adele is not Rochester's daughter. Um, that Rochester has been tricked, um, but he has um, seen through the trick. So there are other possible secrets that turn out not to be important ones, but then there is this other, other secret which makes Rochester's um, attempt to marry Jane something which is actually shocking. Um, less shocking, perhaps, than Jane imagines it, um, but that in itself is shocking that Rochester should even say to Jane, why does it matter we will live as though we're married and no one will know? Um, we will be married and the bigamy's on me. Um, and that, that's a shocking thing to have in a novel. It's really hard. Um, and Charlotte Bronte is doing something really, really daring in, um, in recuperating a character who makes that immoral proposal. You won't find anything like that in Jane Austen, who is um, maybe uh, the greatest novelist of the 19th century. Um, you won't find anything like that in any other characters except for Heathcliff, but Heathcliff is, clearly, is more clearly evil. Um, we still love him but he's more clearly evil. You won't find anything like that in other characters who end up being the characters um, who are part of the happy ending. Um, so part of the question is, you can ask if you're, if you're doing um, what one should do, which is a kind of reconstruction of, um, what, of how it is that Charlotte Bronte is putting the novel together. Part of the question is, um, is it that she needs some plot device to make it clear that what Rochester is doing is wrong? And is the mad woman in the attic a kind of too clunky plot device that simply makes us think the way he treats his first wife is simply evil and something? I guess a way to ask this is, if we agree, and do we agree? Let me just ask you this. Do we agree that, that Jane Eyre is a feminist novel? Does anyone disagree? Okay, why do you disagree? Leaving aside um, the first Mrs. Rochester, what else about it? I think you were the only disagreeer. Yeah, what's your name? Well, oh, Maxie. Um, Maxie. Well, there's this strange kind of connection between, like, love versus autonomy. Yeah. And the more autonomy she has, the less love she has. But the more love she feels, the less autonomy she has. Don't you think... Herself. Okay, so what do people think of that? That there's love that Jane Eyre is about love versus autonomy and that they can't be reconciled? I wouldn't say it's like versus, but it's like this weird balance where she keeps losing autonomy when she gains love. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, so that so that the sum of love plus uh, plus autonomy is a constant. Yeah. Or the product is a constant. Hannah. Maxie. I don't know. It's still like 
she still chooses to go with the guy who obviously is very sketchy and has done some very dubious things and uh, I don't know, I don't think I can agree with that. Are you against Satan? No, but so part of the question is, is a healthy relationship what you want? Um, now, I think uh, the, these are genuine questions. So partly we need to, we need to contextualize this historically. Um, and clearly this is, not, um, this is not a novel in which men are completely dispensed with or in which true liberation occurs um, with, the, with turning um, away from men entirely. Um, and there are such novels, later feminist novels, which do that and um, which do it really, really powerfully and really, really well. Um, this is not one such novel. On the other hand, here is, I think, a little bit of a way of looking at some of the really unusual things that Charlotte Bronte is doing. So the first one, which has nothing to do with Rochester, is that here you have a character, the heroine, who is um, not at all um, an innocent. That is, the way the novel is written at the start is that Jane Eyre is being treated really unfairly by Mrs. Reed and by um, the entire family. And the one person who eh, kind of gets her and kind of doesn't um, is the housekeeper. But Mrs. Reed is treating her really unfairly. And Charlotte Bronte writes that so that you think where this is going. And let me just say something general in general about how novels work and what's really daring about a novel that doesn't work this way. Um, Alfred Hitchcock, who is the greatest genius in film narrative, um, and who understands narrative um, more deeply, perhaps, than any other film narrator, at any rate, um, says that the way a narrative should work, the way a film should work, is you should tell the audience what you're going to do and make them wonder how. And what that means is that, in general, and Hitchcock's movies always work this way. We're, we'll be talking about film later, not Hitchcock, but film. Hitchcock movies always work this way, is that someone who is innocent is thought to be guilty of terrible, terrible things. Um, that is, in a way, you could say, you know, they're, 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 there's a book called The Seven Basic Plots. There's a website which has the 47 basic plots. Um, there's another tweet that says there are two basic plots. Um, but there are a limited number of basic plots um, that all narratives conform to, um, or that almost all narratives conform to. And how many there are, whether there's one or two or 47, just depends on how important the variations in those plots are. Two is probably too small, um, 47 is too many, seven is a reasonable number. Um, but what if there's one basic plot, um, especially one basic first-person plot, it's that someone who is trying to do the right thing, because we always want want the good guys to do the right thing, someone who's, who is trying to do the right thing is misunderstood because um, in trying to do the right thing, they do something that causes others to misunderstand them. 
um, and they are therefore wrongly thought to be different and less on the side of the good guys than they really are. Um, so what you'll find is that a huge number of entertaining stories work that way. Um, that that situation is an entertaining one because it gives us someone to root for, um, a situation that they have to overcome, which we are rooting for them to overcome, and um, we are rooting for them to overcome that situation um, because we also feel good that we know that we're right to root for them, whereas those who are misconstructing them and who are trying to prevent them from getting what they want are wrong. So our rooting becomes um, part of the um, attitude towards a resolution, towards a plot resolution, towards an ending, which puts us on the same side as the character who is trying to do the right thing. Um, we, can, we can credit ourselves with rooting for that character. Um, that's all we can do. Otherwise, all you can do is read. You can't otherwise intervene in a story or a novel. Um, in a first-person game, yes, but in a first-person game, you're not rooting, you're doing stuff. But in a narrative, you don't have control over what happens, and so the only control you actually have is rooting. And the experience of rooting is, pure and simple, the experience of narrative. Um, you root for, you root against. You want certain things to happen, you don't want other things to happen. You hope, you anticipate, you worry, and so on. And all of that is, in some sense or other, the experience of rooting. This is why stories and, and, and sports are similar, why the same sorts of vocabulary are used for stories and for sports. Uh, protagonist means the first player in a sporting event as well as the hero or heroine of a fiction. Um, so rooting is something that we can do in sports. Rooting is something that we do in narratives. What you will find is many classic narratives have moments of sporting events in them as though to, as though they go together naturally. Most famously, Book 23 of the Iliad, which is all about the funeral games for Patroclus. So rooting is our experience of a narrative, and part of that experience is that we want to root against the odds um, because the pleasure of winning when you root against the odds is a greater one. Um, the pain of losing when you're rooting against the odds for someone who should win is a more tragic pain. But in all these cases, what we feel are people like ourselves who are rooting for someone who is undergoing unmerited misfortune. So the unmerited misfortune, remember those Aristotelian terms, the unmerited misfortune that Jane is going through is the unmerited misfortune of someone who is being treated really, really badly by Mrs. Reed and by Mrs. Reed's children, by her cousins. Um, she's being treated really, really badly by them. And in the standard novel, and this is what Charlotte Bronte is tempting you to think is going to happen but doesn't happen, what we would imagine is that Jane is being misunderstood by Mrs. Reed. Um, that, that if Mrs. Reed were to see truly into Jane's soul, 
she would see what a good person she was and she would stop treating her so badly and, and she would stop thinking that she was being perverse or sulking or acting the way she does because she has a bad streak in her because, um, because she's the bad seed and that what Mrs. Reed would see instead was that she had treated Jane unfairly. Now one of the amazing things in the novel is Mrs. Reed never sees that. And even when given an opportunity to see that on her deathbed, which is what we're expecting, is that Mrs. Reed in her deathbed is somehow Jane will become vindicated in her eyes because vindication is one of the great joys of a novel. You see, you were wrong about me. Oh my goodness, I was wrong about you. I can't tell you how sorry I am, how awful I feel. That's okay, Mrs. Reed, go to your death in peace. That doesn't happen. And um, that refusal of vindication is characteristic of Jane Eyre. That is, that characters don't find out how wrong they are about um, the person that we're rooting for. That is a baseline pleasure of fiction, is when someone finds out how wrong they've been. It's a baseline pleasure of life, when your parents are pissed at you unfairly, and then they realize they've been wrong. What a joy when they tell you, when they apologize to you. There's nothing better, well, there are things that are better, ice cream is better, um, but there's little better than an apology from a parent. Um, that is the um, central experience of vindication that we get. Um, you were wrong, um, and I told you you were wrong, and you thought I was being um, fresh by telling you you were wrong, um, but now you admit you were wrong, and it's okay. Don't feel bad about it, Mom and Dad. Um, but the pleasure is that they do feel bad about it and that you're the one who has to tell them not to feel bad about it. So we don't get that in Jane Eyre. Um, it doesn't happen. There are a lot of evil characters and they aren't improved by finding out that they were wrong about Jane. Narratives of vindication, in a way, are narratives in which everyone turns out to be good. That is, that if you get vindicated, it's because what went wrong was that you were misunderstood rather than that someone was behaving very badly towards you because they were selfish. Mrs. Reed is selfish. Her children are selfish. And that selfishness is a fact about them. It's not a misunderstanding. It's a fact. So Charlotte Bronte writes the beginning of Jane Eyre as though Jane is misunderstood. But she isn't misunderstood. Or if she is misunderstood, understanding her better wouldn't help. Another thing that makes a feminist is this, you will, there are no characters that I can think of, no women characters that I can think of before Jane Eyre who are as angry as Jane is. That's a new thing in a heroine, is to have an angry heroine. A heroine who not only feels treated unfairly, but reacts and reacts with rage. Jane is full of rage, and that's not a bad thing, but it sounds like a bad thing. As soon as I say that, you know, Jane as a character is a character who is full of rage. As soon as I say that, it sounds like I'm dissing her. 
but I'm not. What Charlotte Bronte is basically saying about her is someone put in this position should not feel that what they ought to do is turn the other cheek. That is that women have always been taught to accept the misconstructions put upon them, to give up any sort of ambition to eat the apple or to see what life the gods live there or to be equal to Adam or whatever, that women in narrative, mostly by, but not entirely by men, up until now have always been made to feel that anger is a bad thing. And there are two ways that anger can be a bad thing. One way is anger can be a bad thing if you're put in a position where you're so unfairly treated that you get angry about it. And then the source of what's bad about anger would be the society that puts you in that position. The other way that anger is a bad thing is if it's a bad personality trait. Um, what the really daring thing that Bronte is doing is she's making anger into a personality trait of Jane's, but not saying that it's a bad thing that it's part of her personality. It's part of her spiritedness that she gets angry. When Satan gets angry, it's a good thing. Um, it's really hard to find women characters in great works of literature, at least of English literature, before Jane Eyre, where anger is a good thing in a woman. Um, but it is in her, and it makes her different from characters who have come before her. It's pretty extraordinary that way. So here you have a character who really gets pissed off at being treated unfairly, and it's not the way most unfair treatment occurs that if she were understood people would no longer treat her unfairly. It's that she gets pissed off that people who should be fairer to her when they understand her aren't. And Sinjin is a really good example of this, that, that her actions with respect to all the Riverses, but especially her actions with respect to Sinjin, she behaves with ludicrous exemplarity in interacting with him and in interacting with his sisters. Um, she does everything right, but he still thinks that she is behaving um, in a refractory manner, that she is behaving in a way that will um, that is not um, appropriate to God's orders and God's demands. And it's not that Sinjin is in any way an immoral character, except that he doesn't understand what it means to be a human being. And he almost understands it when he puts aside love himself, when he sacrifices love for what he regards as his own duty. He almost understands it, but he perversely insists on not understanding it. And so what you have in Jane Eyre is a character who behaves as though she's not, doesn't have to have the character of a woman in a novel, as though she's a person and not a woman. And she will, her actions are frequently and um, sometimes entirely those um, actions required of women, but her personality is not the personality required of a woman. 
Now, to the first Mrs. Rochester, she's also rather refractory. She also is stubborn. She also refuses to um, accept what she is supposed to accept. On the other hand, she's murderous. Um, she tries to kill Rochester, and Rochester's behavior needs some sort of, his behavior towards her and his behavior towards Jane needs some sort of expiation. And his trying to save her life in the fire and his losing his sight, losing an eye, losing a hand, all of that is, as a plot device, is meant as expiation. But leaving Rochester aside and leaving Jane's attraction to Rochester aside, um, the fact about Jane is that she is not a person who will accept the fate of a novel. Uh, the most famous sentence in Jane Eyre is, reader, I married him. And um, that sentence, part of what's so um, great about that sentence is the extent to which it's entirely her own decision. That is, that's an action that she chooses, not something she wins, but something that she decides to do. She becomes a more and more decisive character, but that decisiveness is part of her from the start. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about Jane Eyre on Wednesday, but read the Aspirin Papers. Um, I hope you will love it.